1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? I could hear the whole tune in my head. It was all there, I could see all the notes, and I just had to get it out. It's a little bit funny, this feeling inside. What did you say your name was again? My name is... Reggie! Reginald Dwight. Reginald. That's my granddad's name. So that is a fat boy from nowhere. Get to be a soul man. Gotta kill the person you were born to be in order to become the person you wanna be. I'm thinking of changing my name to Elton. But that's my name. Yeah, I know. You could be the best selling artist in America if you desire. I was trying to do something bold. Why are you still something flashy? Can you even play the piano in those? Let him know who you are. And just don't kill yourself with drugs. So how does it feel to be a star? It's never gonna last. Let's just enjoy it while we can. First sleeping arrangements, kiddo. All of this is gone. I just hope you realise you're choosing a life of being alone forever. Don't you want to just sing without this ridiculous paraphernalia? People don't pay to see Reg White. They pay to see Elton John. Sorry. I Hey, how much pressure I'm under? Not really. I'll still be collecting my 20% long after you've killed yourself. Maybe I should have tried to be more ordinary. You were never ordinary. Shy little boy, you were. <laughs> Look at you now. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by my friend Chris Keith. Chris. How you doing, Paul? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Not too bad. Not too bad at all. You're we getting me about about 24 hours prior to vacation, so I've still, I've still got most of my brain. It's just turning into vacation brain, but I'm still good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm glad I got you before it totally went to mush. But uh, we're here today to talk about... It's, I feel like this is almost the sequel to our Bohemian Rhapsody uh, conversation. <laughs> we're here to talk about Rocket Man, the Elton John uh, bioflick that opened... Uh, well, when somebody's listening to this, it'll have opened about three weeks ago. Uh, yeah. We've we've both seen it and we've shared a couple of messages about it and uh, having having already seen and covered Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, this seems like a natural follow up considering the fact that the director Dexter Fletcher is the guy who took over for Brian Singer on Bohemian Rhapsody when Brian Singer yeah, was, was unceremoniously dismissed. I was really surprised. I was moderately surprised about that. When I was looking at the the credits and saw that Fletcher was doing it, I didn't realize he had all of a sudden become Mr. Biopic. But maybe that's his new lot in life. It's better than doing a Band of Brothers. So, well, what surprised know. me about it wasn't so much that he would choose another biopic or that he was chosen for another biopic, but what surprised me is that so close in time he'd be able to manage to be available to do both. Right. You know, I would think, you know, with the pre-production and post-production work that has to be done, and those two would directly conflict, the post-production on Bohemian Rhapsody and the pre-production on Rocket Man, or the act of filming on Rocket Man. I mean, I don't know about the timing of it, but you would think it would be very, very difficult to juggle that schedule. Yeah, especially, I mean, <clears throat> I mean, not to, not to belittle Bohemian Rhapsody, which I, you know, we covered, I, I love it. But, you know, going from a movie where you're essentially, I mean, yes, they tricked it up and they were a composite of Freddie Mercury uh, performances that were studio and live. And I remember reading, it was like a mishmash on how they put the music together. But to go from that, which to me would be easier than having Taron Edgerton sit down and record all of this and then go through the post-prod to make sure that everything syncs, you know, lines up and and all of those little nuances that would be that's a lot of juggling that sounds crazy i can't believe he got it done in such a short period you're right yeah it just it seems like the time crunch would be insurmountable but apparently i'm mistaken because he managed (laughs) to get it done And, and who knows how much work was done by others to allow this to be done i don't even know if it's the same for all i know the same production company i really don't know so you know i'm not sure what kind of uh accommodations they had to make to allow him to do this but coming off bohemian bohemian rhapsody and the success that that was both critically and uh financially i'm not surprised that they would want him for this on the other hand and i gotta keep jumping back and forth here i'm not sure how much they knew as far as that went before they chose him for this because i think when i saw bohemian rhapsody (laughs) there was a trailer for this movie attached to it yeah i think you're right i know the first i don't know if they had a full-on trailer i remember seeing a teaser um back gosh it was in like may of last year i believe and i could be wrong but i want to say i saw uh like it popped up on maybe imdb and it was nothing longer than maybe you know a 30 second tease but uh, I don't. I have to go back and look at that to see if they had names attached. I mean, I'm, yes, his name would obviously been attached to it by then. But that was that was yeah. I want to say May of eighteen. Yeah. So they had to have hired him for this before they knew what level of success that movie was going to get. I mean, they. Yeah. I'm sure they knew the advanced buzz on it because 
I, from the minute they announced that movie, I think there was a, a level of buzz for it. Yeah, there was. <laughs> and I think in popular culture, Elton John is probably more popular than Freddie Mercury and Queen. So, you know, you would think there's a market for this movie right off the bat. Now, yeah, I guess we're yeah, going to start with that. What is your level of fanhood for Elton John going into this? Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm, I'm a, I mean, I'd, I'd probably say I'm a, que- a bigger Queen fan than Elton, but that's not to not to put down my fanhood of Elton John. I when I I was trying to that was one of the things I was thinking of when I was putting together my notes is when when did I first you know uh, start listening to Elton. And the only thing that popped into my head was, um, and it's it's a defunct station in uh, in Dallas called Q102 that used to do um, what they call Triple Shot Thursdays, and they, it was a classic. Well, I guess those would technically be classic rock, even though that was 1981. But they uh, they were playing your either normal, you know, regular rock music, and then some of the classics. But without fail, you would get. You get your uh, Eric Clapton with Layla, um, and you probably have the same three songs every time. So it was probably Layla, Cocaine, and I Shot the Sheriff. And with Elton, you had a, probably a choice of five. Inevitably, you would always get Biddy and the Jets, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, or Rocket Man, and Crocodile Freaking Rock. Not and, Love Lies Bleeding and uh, Funeral for a Friend? No, no, thankfully. Uh, but, uh, uh, I wouldn't say thankfully on that personally, but, uh, you know... <laughs> Different minds can differ on it, but you know, as far as them playing, you know, playing the straight rotation of the hits, I was, you know, hooked on that. I mean, I was, I was a hits fan when I was younger, and then as I got older, I, uh, you know, found myself more of just, more than just a greatest hits, digging in and you know, listening to the deep cuts and stuff like that. But up until I saw the film, yeah, I still hated Crocodile Rock with a fiery passion. So, um, but no, um, I've never seen him in concert. I uh, wanted to, um, and then I mentioned before we started that Alamo Drafthouse did a uh, a music. It's kind of a music video night uh, where they were playing um, a, you know various selections, and it was more of a dance party theme. So everybody, they're trying to trick it up. They do that at Alamo, and unfortunately, they're playing a bunch of ballads, and they were the you know late '80s, early '90s ballads. You're, you're kind of sitting there thinking, um, you know, you, you might want to jazz this up just a little bit, maybe. Uh, Maybe Philadelphia Freedom, maybe uh, maybe something that is you know faster than a uh, you know sixty beats per minute, and then finally toward the end they kind of jazzed it up and then got to you know the songs that you were really expecting and and a live version of Benny that was really really good. So yeah, that's that's my 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 fanhood for for Elton John in a nutshell. All right, well I'll give my background, which is a little bit more lengthy. Um, I was familiar with Elton John before I was particularly into music. But I knew his stuff because he was, you know, as as I was an early teenager, he was coming out with Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and Captain Fantastic, which were both, you know, mega, mega hits. Uh, so by the time I got into music in high school, which is really when I started to get into it a lot, uh, you know, he was a big star. And he had pretty much dropped off the touring uh, scene at that point. And I remember either it was either at, towards the end of high school or when I was starting college. So the, the very late 70s or the very early 80s, uh, he announced a uh, comeback of sorts. And it was a very limited performance. I ended up going two nights with some friends of mine. Uh, but he, the performance was just him and Ray Cooper, who's uh, a percussionist. And it was just the two of them playing together, him on the piano and Ray Cooper on every 
possible percussion instruments you can think of. Uh, and it was in a, you know, a smaller, like the Beacon Theater or something like that. And I think we went two nights to that. And over the course of the almost 40 years since then, uh, I've seen Elton John quite a few times. I was just mulling this over in my mind, trying to figure out who I've seen the most in my life, because I haven't really kept track. It's either Elton John, Billy Joel, or Bruce Springsteen. I'm not sure which. All three are most certainly in double digits, as far as the number of times I've seen them. Uh, Elton John, most recently, last February, I made my first ever trip to Vegas. And while we were there, we saw his Vegas show, which was, I think it's like Elton John and his his, his million-dollar piano. That's what it was. (laughs) And uh, it was really a dynamite show. It was very, very enjoyable. And I wanted to see him, I wanted to catch him one time because he is, has announced that this is his last tour. doesn't mean it's his last concerts, but his last tour. And he hit the New York area in November, and I would have liked to have been able to go see him. But I, it was actually, I think it was in February, not in November. I'm not sure. Uh, but I, would, I was not able to get tickets to see him locally. It's kind of, I find it kind of amusing that I was able to get tickets in Vegas, but not here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like I said, I've seen him in concert quite a few times. And I would say that the quality varies some some performances have been better than others but they've always been enjoyable so i i'm a fairly big fan i i know a lot of the deep cuts although i don't know all of them i'm not you know one of these people who knows every song in his catalog but i know most of it uh and i and i enjoy most of it so I, i've been a fairly big fan over the years so going into this when i first saw the coming attraction uh i was pretty intrigued to see it yeah, going in, I was, I mean, <clears throat> after seeing the teaser, I thought the teaser looked, you know, really great. And I was, uh, I already had a little bit of back uh, backstory to it. I don't know. Did you ever see the movie, uh, the movie Sing? And of course, I have a, a kid who was, I think, seven when it came out. So um, it was an animated film with, uh, let's see, McConaughey played uh, a koala. Um, John C. Riley was a, a sheep. Um, Rhea Perlman was a llama who was a worked for the bank and ended up foreclosing on the theater, and then, um, uh, but uh, Taron Edgerton was a gorilla, hmm. and he actually they're putting together a, a, a performance to try to basically save the theater, and he ends up singing "I'm Still Standing," and it's really really good. So I was like, okay, we know he can clearly play, you know, he can he can do an Elton John song, and it, it sounds really solid. And then, you know, damned if I'm not watching Kingsman, uh, the second Kingsman. And uh, have you seen that? I saw the first one. I never saw the okay. second one. Second one is, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But at one point, Julianne Moore kidnaps Elton John, who at, playing himself, and has him changing, uh, I think she changed Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting to Wednesday, because that was when he was going to be performing. And it was just an excuse for Elton to cuss. But um, yeah, so of course Taron Edgerton's in there, and it's like okay, now they're, they're on the sa- on the screen together, and I think that was may have been right around the time that they, or maybe when it came out on video, it was right around the time that they had the uh, teaser. So it was like okay, now I'm I'm fully invested in this, and I've already I know he can sing, so let's see, let's see if he can do it for an entire movie and see how it goes. Hmm. So now, format wise, and you know, I'm just gonna go back a little bit to when we talked about Bohemian Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, at that, when we did that review, I talked about a distaste that I have for biopics that change facts. 
So one of the first things I was interested in seeing was, you know, how factual were they going to be with this? And I think other than playing with the timeline, most of what we see is close to reality. I think the timeline is definitely fiddled with as far as when songs play and that type of thing. But I don't oh, yeah. think they—I don't think the events are all that fudged. Uh, so you know, that's one of the things that I guess played a little better for me that they that they didn't. You know, didn't have things in there that were blatantly untrue, as far as I know. The only I was I was looking through everything, and I haven't had a chance to read. I've got a biography. Well, I'll get to in a sec of uh, Elton that I haven't had a chance to read yet. The only thing I noticed that was blatantly wrong, and I even said it in the theater without even looking it up. I was like, "That's a load of crap." Um, yeah, he didn't. He didn't base his last name on John Lennon. Oh, so that's guys, yeah. No, he based that on another bandmate. Yeah, it's John Henry or something like that. I can't remember the guy's name. Uh, but yeah, another guy in the band. So Elton and John, and he just compiled them both together, and that's how I came up with it. I mean, it was cute for the film, but it's like, okay, come on. He didn't He didn't base it on John Lennon. It's not a, not a separate. But yeah, everything else, I mean, yeah, the, I know it was, it was funny because, um, let's see, like for instance, at the end, no, well, skipping ahead to the end, I'm Still Standing, um, that song came out in like 1983, and that's, and then, um, uh, what was it, uh, what was the other one? Oh, Don't, uh, don't Let the Sun Go Down on Me is like from 74, and that, he's playing that, it looks like he's writing it when he's, you know, basically establishing the relationship with his wife, and that had to have been, that was early 80s, right? That was like 80, 83, 84? Mid-80s, mid somewhere in there. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I mean, yeah, Fast and Loose of the Timelines is, you know, nothing new for this kind of thing. But, I mean, at least they, there were some, I, I, I put it this way, Bohemian Rhapsody had a, a few more factual inaccuracies that were just blatant. This one was a, a little more, a little bit, one, it was a little bit more linear, and two, it, it, it kind of held to the facts a little bit better. Yeah, and I'm going to touch on uh, one of the things that, that you brought up. I, I, wanna, I don't want to steal your thunder on it. Uh, but I think this plays a little bit more like the way we've recently seen with Broadway shows, uh, and you, you mentioned in, in our pre-recording conversation that, that you know you, you thought it was similar to Jersey Boys. Now, have you seen the Broadway presentation of Jersey Boys or just the movie? I have seen the movie. I have the, the Broadway, um, the, the music uh, of it, the soundtrack, the score. So I haven't actually seen it on, on stage, which I, you can kind of, you, kind of halfway... <laughs> reason your way through it how they're doing it but yeah i've only seen the movie okay because the the broad the, I, and i i shouldn't have asked if you saw the broadway show i should have just asked if you saw the <laughs> stage production uh I, I just assume everybody lives in in range to go to broadway like i do uh but i I've, i i have seen it on broadway and the broadway production is actually far more impressive than the movie uh which it pains me to say that a little bit because i i'm a big big clint eastwood fan and he directed it but just the same in in that or in beautiful which is the carol king story uh they kind of shift the songs around a little bit to tell the story and i think they did that in this movie also uh you know the, the, he uh has the song uh, i want love and they play that when his father is kind of neglecting him yeah, you know, and they have him performing that when his father's neglecting him. So, yeah, timing-wise, that didn't work out, but it gives the message of what they want to give. Same thing with "I'm Still Standing." Yes, that came out while he was still uh, under the influence of drugs and alcohol, but they present it as if it was done after he went to rehab, which is not true. But that's you know, like I said, that's for dramatic effect, and that's kind of the timeline. 
I think if there's anything about this movie that kind of doesn't ring true or is factually you know problematic at all is just that they seem to focus on certain aspects of his life and they leave out a lot of other things uh you know for example he had quite a few or he has quite a few celebrity friends uh who he has from what i understand fairly close friendships with uh, you know, not he's gone, but actually, I understand he and John Lennon were very close at one time. Uh, he and Rod yeah. Stewart were very close. Uh, you know, there, there were things there. You know, the only one we saw there, the only other one we saw in the movie musically was Kiki D. So, you know, they're, yeah. they're not really giving you all of that. Um, he was engaged to be married once before, and then he did get married in the 80s, which I, I kind of thought at the time it was purely a uh, publicity thing to try and uh, eliminate the talk of his being gay because back in the 80s that still was kind of socially unacceptable to certain people. So I think right. that they were trying to just kind of sugarcoat it. Or at least that's what I thought. The way they presented in the movie was, you know, he, he developed a relationship with this woman and kind of thought, well, let me give it a shot. That's at yeah, least the way I, I saw it. Yeah, and it, it was it, it, that's such an abbreviated part. I mean, granted, it was only like that one scene and they don't really establish how long that that relationship was going, but I, mean, I think yeah, they were married she, for about a year. In, oh, in oh, actuality. it was only a year. Okay, wow. Okay, um, I remember. I remember thinking that at the time because I, I think I read an article, um, and it was I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I want to say it was in either Rolling Stone or it had to have been Rolling Stone back from the seventies where he was you know addressing that and he was just you know saying well no I'm uh, I think he actually said he was bisexual. I can't remember if that was in Rolling Stone magazine or if I read that years after the fact, but anyway. I don't know. <laughs> but I would think in the 70s they would try and keep that undercover. And yeah, in fact, they even make so. mention of, of it in the movie to not be seen together, him and his lover at that time. So, right, yeah. So I, I, think, I think that would be more reality was that they'd try and keep it, you know, you know, just just uh, hidden from people to some extent, just because they don't want to deal with the potential uh, blowback from you know close-minded people. Right. Yeah. But you know, back when you were talking. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Good. No, you talk. No, I was going to say you were talking about the celebrities. Yeah, he was. Not only was he. I mean, not only was he friends with John Lennon. I know John sang on. Uh, what song was it that they did together? Whatever gets you through the night. No, they did. They did right. a lot in a live performance. They did whatever gets you through the night. Lucy in the sky with diamonds, and I saw her standing there. Yeah. And, if and if it's I'm a pretty famous performance. Yeah, and if I'm not mistaken, uh, Elton's Sean's Godfather. That's very possible. Yeah. So I, I and I was yeah because I know that that was right around the time. See if that was. If I'm not, I know a lot more about John Lennon's timeline in the 70s than I know about Elton's timeline, sadly. That's why I need to read, really read that book. But uh, that was right around the time John was um, estranged from Yoko, so he would have been hanging around Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon. And <clears throat> I think they were all just, uh, and I think Elton, and I think they were all just drinking buddies for the better part of that entire, uh, was it, what, did, what did they refer to that, the Lost Weekend? So yeah, yeah leaving like that. that whole thing out was kind of amazing that they didn't even make mention of it. And uh, I was at, just to go back to an Elton John concert, so I was at a concert probably around 1985, and Elton performed uh, Empty Garden, which is dedicated to John Lennon. Uh, 
And when he did it, everybody in the audience that had lighters with them, which were many of the people, you know, lit up their lighters and held them in the air. And at the end of the performance, Yoko Ono came out with Sean onto the stage and just walked up to a microphone and she said something like, uh, I know you're all my family now, something like that. And the audience went nuts and then, you know, she... She left at that point, but it was, it was a pretty impressive moment emotionally, especially having been a huge Beatles fan as I grew up. You know, to yeah. to see that kind of tribute to John and have Yoko come out, and it was it was it it gave me goosebumps at the time. To be fair, um, wow, that's that's giving me goosebumps. You're telling me about it. <laughs> wow. So you know, like I said, I've I've been an Elton John fan for a long time, <laughs> and I, I have seen many of the concerts over the years. Uh, performance-wise, I was less than totally enamored with this movie as far as that went. I think that was my biggest disappointment, and it probably is a little bit of a blowback from Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, because nobody sounds like Freddie Mercury, so they used his actual vocals in that movie, and, you know, uh... What you call it? Taryn Edgerton clearly has a decent voice, but to me, he doesn't sound like Elton John. No, not at all. I mean, it's there are a couple of, uh, and I think my wife even mentioned it. You know, as the movie goes on, because you know, early on he looks nothing like Elton. Even in the even at the Troubadour, he looks nothing like Elton. Um, some of his mannerisms, yeah, he's got those down. Uh, some of the little stage nuances aren't. I, I was I, a couple of us trying to think. Was he dressed like? Queen Elizabeth at one point, and he's prancing around the stage. Yeah, I remember if that was when he was drunk, is maybe when he was crazy drunk. <laughs> I think he was always but, crazy drunk in that era. Yeah, he was always crazy drunk. But um, no, he wasn't. That was one of the things. Was I mean, he wasn't. Like, it was. It was one thing. Like with um, with Rami Malek, he was. It was you know full on portrayal, and he wasn't. He never. I never got the sense that he was mugging for the camera. He wasn't overdoing it. It was. It was right on. And with Edgerton, I never thought, you know, well, he didn't, you know, overall his voice sounds, it sounds nothing like Elton. Um, I mean, it's it's a good voice. I think it's a strong voice. Uh, but yeah, it, as the movie went on, you kind of, I, I was, I found myself more and more, you know, pulled into the uh, the illusion, if that's the right way to, to put it, where you see him, you know, you see him on stage, you see some of the mannerisms, and all of a sudden, yes, you just totally kind of you know, throw it to the side that, yeah, this guy really, you know, when you get right down to it, he doesn't look a whole heck of a lot like Elton John, and especially when he, at one point when he takes his shirt off and is like, Rob, Saren, would you put on, like, maybe 10 pounds? Because uh, let's go over the fact that Elton mentions that he's ordering the entire restaurant's desserts with ice cream, and you look like you maybe weigh 165 pounds. Okay, yeah. So he's definitely not a method actor. <laughs> and, and a lot of the performances were, you know, that the choice they made was to show them less as actual performances and more as kind of fantasy pieces yes and that kind of took me out of the movie a little oh really okay that's 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 that whole stylized musical part that i just i absolutely loved um and especially when they used um oh i'm trying to think was it honky cat that was basically a montage to show his uh exorbitant lifestyle with uh john reed Mm-hmm. And they're, they're they're sipping champagne. They're getting you know getting his ears pierced. Um, and the the that's you know that's one of the things I thought that, that kind of took me in. I mean, totally grasped uh, grabbed me in the movie 
was when he gets there to the Troubadour. And like I said, Crocodile Rock has, because I've heard it a billion times, has been my least favorite Elton John song for decades. And then the way they did it, I was like, this is fantastic. And then when he starts floating in the air, and then all the crowd starts floating, it's like, this is wonderful. And I was like, I don't know why, just because it was so stylized, something about it just had that, that feel that I just was, it, it, it sucked me in. I, th- I guess it was kind of a either it's for you or it's not kind of thing. And it's yeah. it's not that I hated it. It's just that I felt like as I started getting immersed in the life story and then when you start throwing these fantasy moments in there, it would kind of pull me out of the life story again. So it didn't allow me to totally just immerse myself in the movie. Gotcha. Well, I did like, uh, I was thinking of the other uh, fantasy element was when he, uh, when he's trying to kill himself in the pool and younger, um, was it supposed to be like nine year old Elton is at the bottom of the pool in the rocket man suit when he starts singing rocket man. Mm-hmm. And that was well, one that was totally surreal uh, Two, it kind of reminded me of the graduate when, um, uh, when Benjamin is in the bottom of the pool. Uh, and then, as it goes, because it immediately progressed from that, where they've got him, you know, they got him on a gurney, they, I guess, pump his stomach, and then it's just a uh, just a, a quick scene where he's on stage, I guess, it's supposed to be in L.A., wearing the Dodger uniform. Right. And it, it just moves on immediately, and it's like, wow, it almost felt, I was, it, it, the first thing I thought about when I saw it was, it almost feels like, uh, I mean, it's almost like, okay, let's just shoot him up or get him get him cleaned up so he can get back on stage to do the very next performance, and the hell with any of these problems. I was like, my God. Rocket Man, which I've always loved the song, but all of a sudden it was almost uh, a metaphor for Comfortably Numb mm. <laughs> from the wall. And I was like, wow, this almost feels the exact same way. It's like, okay, let's just get him get him to go on stage for the next show, and then we'll, we'll worry about it later. And that was, that was kind of an interesting take because, I mean, like I said, I've always loved the song. And did you notice that they, they changed one word in the song? Not off the top of my head, I didn't. <laughs> It was, it was, uh, yeah, he said, um, I miss the earth, I miss my life. And I'm like, it's not oh. life, it's wife. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I was like, wait a second, that, and then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, well, it makes sense for where it is in the movie, is him talking about, you know, using the song as a, as an encapsulation of what's going on. I'm like, okay, good choice. Don't, don't mess with any other songs, but good choice. <laughs> and, and these movies, the way they show it, I think, you know, uh, and I, again, I keep comparing this to, to Bohemian Rhapsody, because the two seem to be such companion pieces almost. Uh, but they, they just kind of show you that no matter how successful these people are, and no matter how wonderful they are on stage, that they have, you know, th- their lives present them with problems just like anybody else's. Uh, you know, adoration and money isn't going to solve those things in your life. And I think that's a, a message that you get from these movies. Uh, and, and I think it's a, probably a very realistic message. Uh, so, you know, you do have to drama, dramatize things. But I do think it's often, you know, it's, it's often the case that these people who achieve superstardom don't do it without paying a, a tremendous price as far as their personal lives go. And Elton John, you know, the way it's presented in this movie, and I think it is reality, is, you know, he didn't, he never got the proper love from his family. And he didn't get, you know, he had a lot of, let's just quote, for lack of a better word, call them hangers on. Uh, 
in his life, in his professional life. And that, it's, you know, it seems like that drove him to succeed in a way almost to, to show people. See, you know, see, I am worthwhile or however you want to interpret that. But then, you know, the, yeah. you, you see the people in their lives who stand by them through this stuff. Uh, I, I think this, this movie uh, makes Bernie Taupin out to be, you know, just practically a saint. Uh, the way yeah. he, he dealt with Elton and, and, you know, he the way he stood by him. Yeah, I you know, that was interesting with Bernie because, you know, he keeps every time he refers to not every time, but he, at least three times in the movie, he's talking about how they never had a fight. I'm like, you mean other than the time when they were fighting? Yeah. And you're screaming, you're screaming at him. But I mean, the fact that the guy, you know, hey, let's get out of here. Let's go, you know, let's go to my uh, my ranch. We'll just get back to the old ways and we'll just we'll decompress. And he doesn't want to do it. I'm going to work with somebody else. Um, and, you know, he's he's still there for him. And when he, I mean, it was almost I, well, that was right around the time in the movie, which God knows that's nowhere near, you know, close in a timeline. But when he's at the restaurant and Bernie basically, you know, just says F this and gets in the car and leaves. That's roughly around the time that, you know, you have the, the show. Was that supposed to be at MSG when he's dressed in the orange devil suit? Yeah, it's supposed just, to be. Okay. Yes. Okay. Uh, that's roughly around the time where he just, you know, leaves and then goes to, uh, goes into rehab. And then granted, you know, it's nowhere, probably there's nowhere near where that was in the timeline, but the, yeah, you're right. The guy was, you know, constantly there for him. And then right at the very end, <clears throat> when he's having the the and again it's that that whole fantastic scene uh well fantastic is in fantasy where it's mom who by the way it took me 30 minutes of the movie to realize that that was bryce dallas howard in that makeup uh i i only mom. i only realized it when i saw it in uh on imdb i i did not know <laughs> i I was totally lost in the character, but mom was mom was a terrible human being. I mean, she was she was one of the most selfish people I've ever seen. Dad, I mean, that was the mo one of the most gut wrenching scenes when he goes to visit dad, and dad has his new family, and he's hugging both boys. He's got his arms around him like they're his best friends, and he's just kind of I mean, you feel for the guy. And then the only person early on that even really you know gave him any attention at all was grandma. But then once you get to Bernie, Bernie. Bernie was going to be with him through thick and thin. He was going to take, you know, be with him and, and and do anything for him and hold no grudges. And if they have a fight, it's like, hey, I'll, I'll get over it because you're my brother. And that was one of the most telling things. But and you said a second ago how, you know, it was it was uh, he. I, I'd say yes. It's part of it is so. I mean, was the fact that nobody you know showed him any sort of um, any sort of love at all other than his grandmother. But that's and that was the real telling point was that he. I think. And this sounds very, very cheesy, uh, psycho uh, therapist, but he needed to love himself first, and that's why he's hugging nine-year-old Elton in the middle of the room to finally give him that hug because he finally loves himself in order for him to be able to love any, anyone else around him. And you know, coincidentally, that's when he finally is on the basically the road to success. Right, right, yeah, and, and that was, yeah, I think that was the clear message. Uh, that, that he needed to accept himself and then he could move past his demons. And the fact that he's in a devil costume when he has to move past his <laughs> demons, I, I don't think that's a, an accident. Not a, not a coincidence at all. But, you know, with, with um, I mean, even with, uh, you said hangers on, I mean, he had the, the, all the little sycophants that were around him and then John Reed was terrible. But, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was like in Bohemian, I mean, you had... Um, where was he? It was when he was in Germany. Freddie Hett was surrounded by all those um, 
those incredibly stereotypical German uh, dancer guys. Um, but he didn't have anybody. And then, you know, the band takes him back in about 30 seconds once he, you know, apologizes and then they move on to Live Aid. But, you know, in both of those cases, and I thought about this, um, you know, in all these, that the, these characters have this either, it's either a self-loathing or they've got these very, you know, problematic issues that despite the fact they're super successful, and even in, even in Jersey Boys, he's got a whole family situation that was terrible. And then uh, Tommy's ripping him off for all this money. But all these guys had these really fundamental issues. And I sat there and thought about it and was like, well, you know, I probably prefer it that way because I would, I mean, I hate to say that. These guys, there's real people and they went through all these experiences. But I'd much rather have that and then they triumph over the struggle than to have somebody like Kanye who just thinks he's the greatest person ever and oh, I don't have any problems at all. And I'm, I'm sure maybe when he gets home at night, he cries and, you know, his pictures of himself all around the room because he's not loved, but I kind of doubt it. He probably, <laughs> you know, I think these guys uh, and any of these other biopics that are going to be coming out in the near future will probably have somewhat similar issues because that, that's a better story. I mean, yeah, well, you, you, you wonder often, you know, how much of it is reality and how much is fabricated for dramatic purposes, uh, especially as, as they start to hit, to hit on a formula that works. But I do think, you know, somebody like Kanye, uh, and I'm not really overly familiar with him because I have no interest at all in his music. So I only know what, you know, what I hear from headlines and that's about it. But people like that who walk around and say, you know, oh, how great I am, I think they have their own insecurities. That's why they need constant, constant reminders of being great. You know, because yeah. the, oh, the, yeah. second, the second you stop reminding them or they stop reminding you, then they start wondering, what's what's wrong? What's wrong? Why aren't I, or am I not getting this... Uh, you know this this validation that I'm seeking, so I don't I don't know that it's as cut and dried and as uh, you know as clear and happy as any of these people make it look. Uh, but you know I I do think very very often uh, people who do make it to the pinnacle of success uh, in their fields sacrifice in order to get there, and and there are issues behind the scenes that we are completely unaware of. So you know. I think I think this movie almost serves uh, as kind of closure for Elton John because you know as the movie ends they say he's been clean now for I, th I think it's 27 years or something like that uh, yeah. you know clean and sober and you know he's he's found happiness you know he he met his husband and they've adopted I think two children and you know that that you know he at least seems to have found happiness in his life and I think probably telling this story or sharing this story in whatever manner he did just kind of puts it all behind him and lets him just you know live out whatever life he has left in in you know in a in a more normal way at least that's yeah, what i would and, hope for him yeah and yeah i think you're right i think it, it i mean it, it's so brutally honest I mean, him sitting there at uh, at, was sitting at dinner with mom and her boyfriend, and he's talking about, you know, he's done every drug, he's, you know, he's done everything, uh, he's had sex with everything, and it's, you know, it's just so, it's it's so deliberate and honest, and you know, just brutal. But you know, there's a whole sizable portion of this movie. I was I was thinking about it in comparison, again, comparing it to Bohemian, but there's. Not a, I mean, to me, it seemed like, and I'd have to go watch them back to back to see, but it seemed to me that there was more, um, more focus on the, that depressing side, the, um, 
the self-loathing side, the anguish side in this movie than there was in Bohemian. And they may be, you know, 30 seconds longer in one than the other. It may just be because this is the most recent one that I've seen. But it seemed to me that there was, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, I mean, it's not just a one-off scene where he's he's miserable. It seems like, you know, almost a third of the movie, people are showing up and he's, you know, sitting there drunk upstairs while they're all partying in the back. And then, you know, he's either passes out or it wasn't a heart attack. I think what they say, it was a heart infection or something like that. But I mean, I thought he had a heart attack. No, they think they say infarction, which is a heart attack. Oh, he did say infarction. Okay. I misheard him. Okay. It's that Scottish accent. That's that's a lot of people misunderstand that and they think it's cardiac infraction. It's not, it's cardiac infarction. Infarction. Yeah. But so yeah, he did, he did have a heart attack at that point. And, uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I think his personal demons were different from Fe- Freddie Mercury's. I think I think Freddie Mercury did suffer from hangers-on, and he did suffer from overindulgence and insecurity, uh, and his parents' expectations of him in what they defined as normal. At least that's the way that's presented in that movie. Whereas I don't think there's ever a thought that his parents didn't love him. I think in this one, it really is Elton John seeking love, not finding it, and then finding it in a bottle or in cocaine or whatever overindulgence he did until, like you said, until he could learn to love himself and then find true love by being able to get past those demons. And it was really interesting that he apologized to his mother. That one blew me away when he said it. And it's it's one of those things where yeah yeah I get it you're because uh, me I'm the one who would want to go you don't have anything to apologize for she's a terrible human being but in order for him to get by it he has to apologize I mean it, for him to process it he has to you know make that effort and, well he, he needed to learn that he could not have any expectations of her and apologize to her for seeking expectations from her. That's really, I thought, that's the way I interpreted that. Yeah. And, and then once he no longer had any expectations from her, whatever he got from her was fine. He didn't need anything from her anymore. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, that makes, oh, wow. That's good. Wow. <laughs> See, we should, we should open up some sort of clinic here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, on the disappointing end, um, you, know, we're, we're, you know, we're not that far into the release yet, but... I think this is just not going to be a hit. Uh, the box office... Well, actually, no, I mean, it could be. According to what it says on Wikipedia, the budget was $40 million, which is pretty you know, pretty uh, economical in today's market. And so far, the box office is $101.8 million. So I think if it gets up to, say, $150, it's, then that's probably enough to make it a, a hit. I just need to know if that's domestic or not. Because if that's domestic, then I think that is pretty, uh, pretty decent. It's not. Yeah, it's not bad. I was just looking at Bohemian to see what it made, but it probably did quite a bit more. Wow! Never mind. Oh no, Bohemian <laughs> made a lot of money. <laughs> I didn't realize it made nine hundred and three million. Okay, never mind. Uh, yeah, I, and that was one of the other things I thought was I was reading a couple of the reviews and they were saying you know uh, applauding Edgerton and you know what a magnificent performance and I, like I said I, I thought it was really good, but they were you know the, one of the the articles I read was you know questioning if whether you know this will be a 
a back-to-back um, for the Academy Awards. I'm like, no, one, it's not even going to get nominated no. because it came out this at this period in the year. Uh, the only thing that's going to get nominated is going to be you know, an October, November um, indie December release. So it's not even going to get uh, a sniff. Everyone will have already long forgotten about it. Yeah, and I'll I'll be you know giving you a quick quick advance on what I'm going to say later is I don't think that this is an Oscar worthy movie, even if it was released at the time when when Oscars Oscar consideration would be more prominent. Um, that 101 million is worldwide apparently, as, oh, wow. as I look it up. So it's not you know I I think you know worldwide you need you need to make more. Yeah, quite a bit more than that. Wow, that's. That's pretty shallow, especially when it, when it came out. Let's see. Oh, well, that, never mind. I keep thinking. You know, my problem is we saw a sneak preview uh, that was like May the 18th. So we saw it about two weeks before the film came out in wide release. And um, the pr- biggest problem with that, by the way, is waiting for the soundtrack to come out where you can actually listen to it and then having to wait two weeks knowing all the songs and knowing exactly how they're going to be played. But you can't find them anywhere. So that was kind of annoying. <laughs> mm. So what did, what did you think of... Uh... Edgerton's performance in this. I I thought it was great. I thought it was really good. Like I said, I'm kind of a, uh, I'm, I'm not the as big of a of an Elton John fan as Freddie Mercury fan, but I thought his I thought like I said earlier, it it didn't he didn't initially look like him, but some of his his mannerisms caught me and then as it kept going as he aged and you saw them it was more and more and more and then it was just additional levels and then you know the cut scene to be honest i think the cut scenes totally sold it for me where he's in the therapy session and you see as it progresses where he goes from the he's got the devil horns he's taking them off and then he's taking off the the cap and then he's you know and then he's down to uh what was it a hoodie um and then it's basically like he's he's um you know he's uh, uh not decompressing what's the word there deconstructing he's shedding his demons yeah he's shedding his demons yeah that's yeah that's a a, a good metaphor uh he's but as that's occurring i thought um i thought it was a really i thought it was a really strong performance now like i said he doesn't sound to me he doesn't sound um like he's trying to imitate he and that was the point was he wasn't really really trying at all to i mean he wasn't trying to do an impression so uh sound wise of elton which is fine i mean the only i was trying to think of a parallel to that um, because, you know, obviously Malik wasn't singing. Um, and what's that guy's name? John Newton? No, that's not it. John. Uh, the guy in Jersey Boys who's, uh, playing, um, uh, Frankie Valley, he really sounds like that. I mean, I've heard his albums. He, he can, he can do that on a, on a, at the drop of a hat. That's he sounds like deal. that, but he doesn't sound like Frankie Valley, and that's okay. No. Yeah, Frankie Valley had a you know much like Freddie Mercury. Frankie Valley, I, I shouldn't even say had because he's still around and he still performs. Fra- Frankie Valley has a very unique voice, and I don't think they were going to find an actor who could both look li- look like him and sound like him. I don't think there's any chance of that. You might find somebody who could do one, but I doubt you could ever find somebody who could do both. Yeah, not um, a chance. So, so I, I, but I didn't have a problem with that. Like even when I saw the play on Broadway. Uh, it was, it was, you know, the, the the voice singing was fine. I, I didn't think he needed to sound just like Elton John, although because I am particularly familiar with Elton John's music, uh, it would have made it better for me. Uh, there was something where I felt like there was not quite the level of charisma that I really wanted from the lead in the movie. 
he wasn't I felt sorry for him in the movie but I didn't feel he was innately likable if that makes any sense at all it does no now that you mentioned that 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 does make sense I mean it's it was what I thought was and it's funny you mentioned that because my favorite Elton John song is Goodbye Yellowbird Road and for the most part it is sung by Jamie what's his name Jamie Bell uh, the guy that plays Bernie Talbot in the movie so you've got somebody else singing my favorite song which i thought was just bizarre um but no i i can see that i mean i there were you, you did definitely feel sorry for him and it is a very depressing part the um the one the one song part the part that well other than obviously when he's a little kid figuring out how to play by ear but when he's putting the music together for your song when he's sitting in his mom's house and mm-hmm. bernie's shaving oh that part was amazing and that one was one of the parts that i you know i wrote down in my notes that was it's just a priceless scene. I think that one got me. And then um, the stage performance at the Troubadour, I thought was was fantastic. And then there's a yeah, there's a couple of them uh, in there that yeah, I, I can I can definitely see your point that he he doesn't he's not a he's definitely not as charismatic as uh, as some other leads that you would expect in that kind of role. It kind of makes me wonder if he's going to be how he's going to you know shake out over the years because I mean he's other than the Kingsman, I'm trying to think of what other movies Yeah, well, he's, he's, he's a relatively young man at this time. At this point, yeah. I think he's 27, something like that. So oh, wow. yeah, he's he's he could have a long career in front of him yet, and he may pr- totally prove me wrong. But I, I don't know. I just didn't feel he commanded the screen the way I would have wanted hmm. in the role. And and I, I, maybe I'm grasping at straws that I shouldn't be. But you know, I'm I'm. I'm looking at the movie, walking away from it, and I'm trying to decide, what did I really like about it? What didn't I like about it? Why was this slightly disappointing to me? And by slightly, I mean, overall, I enjoyed the movie. It just wasn't the masterpiece I was hoping for. Right. Yeah, I was, uh, one of the things I did notice about, you know, like, going back to his singing, is, and this is not a, not a slide on Elton, because I love Elton John, but I've always thought his voice is... Um, it's not I, i'm trying to characterize it it may just be one of those that nobody else really sounds like him but it's kind of a has kind of a, a normally a raspy type quality to it not raspy it's become I, raspy over the years yeah. if you compare his his vocals from 1975 to his vocals to and say 2005 big difference yeah and maybe it's just he's got a little bit more edge to uh to his voice than taron edgerton does i mean because edgerton almost sounds like uh, sounds like just a little bit cleans the wrong word. I'm not a I'm not a vocal coach to, to be able to compare, but it was it was funny because um, anytime we hear your song, I immediately think, and this is this is so wrong, but I immediately think of Ewan McGregor in uh, Moulin Rouge, who sings a kind of a melody of uh, a melody of medley, not melody, medley of love songs, and then one of them is your song, except he belts it out and it's like punches a hole in the back of the theater when you hear it you're like wow elton doesn't sing like that and then then it's like elton never sang like that there's i can't think of a single song that he did um so it's you know apples and oranges but every time i hear the song there's one part of it where you're expecting um to hear uh just this incredibly loud it's whether uh they're green or they're blue he just turns into a uh an opera singer almost <laughs> and then you hear elton sing it and it's very calm and it's very soothing so it's a, it's an interesting choice but you know it's, it's one of those every time i hear it i guess that's why i've always oh i guess that's when i when i was thinking of, of how edgerton was singing 
it was a little bit clean is not the right word. I'm trying to think of what I mean. It just no, I, like I, I think I, a, I know what you're talking about. Where, where it doesn't feel like he ever totally, totally committed to it. Like he yeah. was playing it safe a little bit in, in how he sang <laughs> the songs. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to disagree with you slightly. And I'm trying to remember, I think it's the Elton John live in Australia CD uh, in which he's backed by the uh, London, the Royal London Symphony, or something along those lines, and they did your song in that one. I'm definitely thinking of a live version of your song, and I think that's the one where he, he didn't leave anything behind in it. He he belted it out. Oh wow! Uh, so I'll have to find I, that. I'm gonna recommend that at some point. Maybe I'll if I find it i'll i'll send i'll send you over an mp3 on it or something but yeah he he there were times there are times where elton really let loose that i and there was definitely a version of your song that i'm thinking of where he did and i think that's the one um and that's actually a tremendous album by the way just as a side note because the the orchestra behind the music is just awesome anyway sweet uh but i i, I feel like yeah I, I didn't feel like like there was a total commitment to singing it in some ways. I thought it was, you know, let me just try and sound pleasant as opposed to let me belt out a tune. And that's probably what they were asking him to do. And I'm also thinking that he's not, you know, he's he's clearly got some singing ability, but I'm thinking that's not his, you know, his number one ability. So yeah. they probably, you know, he probably doesn't have that in him. Uh, I know, and I say this as somebody who has no singing ability whatsoever. So you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I I I don't know how to sing, but I know what I like. <laughs> you know, that's right, what it yeah. comes down to. Right. Let's say I was. Um, oh, well, you know, one of the things I noticed uh, right after it came out, I was kind of curious because this is. I did the same thing again. Back to Bohemian. I did the same thing when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, and started looking for um, you know any. Any biographies? I'm I'm big on the musical biography, but I was looking for anything um, about Freddie, about Queen, just to you know see how close to the story you know it really was. Because you'll get a, you know you'll get the summaries in Wikipedia and you can piece some of that stuff together. But I really wanted to get the nuts and bolts, and you know preferably not a book from like uh, one of his you know ex lovers who just totally badmouthed him or something like that. But um, it was pretty easy for uh, for Freddie. There's about three or four of them out there that are. are had high ratings on Amazon. I grabbed, I think, two of them. I haven't had a chance to read them yet. But looking up Elton, <laughs> there's there's a ton that are going to be coming out, I think, in like September of this year. Mm-hmm. But there's only – I could find two that are out there. And these are you – know, one was uh, Tin Pan Alley. I think it was from like 2013. And the other one uh, – and there's a there's another one that he actually wrote, but I didn't want an autobiography. I wanted something from, you know, a biographer. The other one is from this guy, Tom Doyle, and I don't know if you're familiar with him or not. Not a fan, no. Okay, he wrote this book, which you would, you would probably love if I can find it somewhere. It's um, it's about wings. Um, it's it's Paul McCartney post uh, Beatles, so it basically starts with the breakup, and then goes all the way through Wings till basically the end of the band, and then talks so a little like bit about so it's like the mid '80s um, or so. It gets it pretty much. It gets up to let's see. It gets up to Japan. Um, is really close to the end of the book. Uh, the, not really a lot on the death of uh, of um, really Keith. You can't think of her Linda? name. 
Linda, thank you. Oh my God, really? That's pathetic. Uh, a little bit on the death of Linda, and then talk very briefly about. I think when he started doing the interviews with Paul, it was while um, while he was married to her, uh, to Heather Mills, and then during the breakup, because Paul was very. He goes from being very uh, open and you know, and talking about all this stuff to being very closed mouth and not wanting to talk to anybody, and you kind of understand why. But anyway, the guy's a really good writer, so I've got his. It's called Captain. There's like two of them called Captain Fantastic, but this is his. So I need to check it out because I think it basically is just the entire 70s. I think through, if, if I'm not mistaken, it may be through like the maybe the early 80s. Well, that, that may be worth checking out. But I, 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 I haven't been reading that much lately. Unfortunately, I just don't feel like I have the time to do it as much as I would like. So it's it's hard to to do it. I, I for a while I was getting into the musical biographies. I read. Uh, I don't even remember what they were called. There was one about Eric Clapton that I read, and then I followed that up with Patty Boyd's autobiography, which is interesting to see oh, in a contrast. Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> and then I read Hotel California about the... I, I was going to say about the Eagles, but it's a lot more than the Eagles. It's Eagles, it's Linda Ronstadt, yeah. it's the band, there's all sorts of things going on in that one. Yeah, the last the last two that I read in back-to-back succession were a, a book by Noel Monk, I think that's his name. He was the... Um, the manager for Van Halen from mm-hmm. the David Lee Roth through well, actually through the entire David Lee Roth era. And then, um, drunken and cocaine, uh, uh, Eddie Van Halen kicked him to the curb. And then I followed that up by reading Sammy Hagar's book, which of course goes through his entire career up to basically being kicked to the curb by the drunken and cocaine <laughs> Eddie Van Halen. And you kind of figure out, gee, what's the, what's the unifying link here? Oh, that's right. So anyway, <laughs> sorry, sidebar. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, unfortunately true. Uh, so all that said, uh, before we move on to our ratings, uh, you indicated something about seeing upcoming biographies that were coming out. Yes. The, I, I was actually, I think it was, it was a Reddit and then I heard something on a, one of the local radio stations talking about, well, they were talking talking about rocket man and they mentioned two that are upcoming one sounds really interesting because uh it's an elvis biopic which is um any of them that have come out have either been really bad or I'm trying to think of any of them that have ever been good um but best El- enough, just I'm gonna, I'm gonna inter- best elvis <laughs> movie you know uh, without elvis in it uh that i can remember is there's one i think it was called heartbreak hotel and it's a fantasy. With David a, Keith? Yes. I loved that. <laughs> you obviously know sure the movie I'm talking that, about, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm related to David Keith. Yeah, oh, really? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we've got a mutual cousin, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So every time I see him in something, I'm like, oh, God, it's that guy. <laughs> but, yeah, that's the one with that's, uh, David Keith, Charlie Schlatter. Um, I think Charlie has a, a flag. A United States flag on the back of his jacket, and Elvis rips it off, and then has him fold it like you're folding a flag at a um, like a military, you know, proper folding the triangles, and then fold it. Yes. And, put it up. and he he kidnaps Elvis for his mother. <laughs> yes. <in> the movie. <laughs> and then Elvis kind of goes back but, to his but, roots. He's he's kind of fading away from the rocker Elvis and becoming more the Vegas Elvis. And this this weekend or whatever it is that he spends with his family gets him back to his roots a little bit and it's purely a fantasy movie it has nothing to do with reality but i just found it very enjoyable when i saw it 30 years ago 
Well, it's certainly better than uh, Bubba Hotep, which was um, Elvis, who is in a uh, nursing home in Nacogdoches, Texas, because he <laughs> replaced himself with an Elvis impersonator in like 1977. And all the evidence to support the fact that he was the king burned up in a trailer because he was grilling outside. Such a fine film. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, so back back to biographies anyway, that are uh, coming out. Back to biographies. <laughs> Yeah, um, this one, they haven't cast Elvis yet, but apparently Tom Hanks is cast as Colonel Tom Parker, which I, I think I'll see that just to see Tom Hanks. As I like Colonel that, Tom. yeah. Yeah, I'm in. I'm in. Uh, the other one, which could very well spell the end of my biopic-loving career, is um, one about, and I don't know why or how, they have enough information on this guy, but they're talking about doing one about Boy George. And all I can think is... Culture Club had what one album, maybe two. I think they had two. I don't really recall. Yeah, so I, when they said that, I was like, one, I didn't really care back then. So great, but it doesn't seem like one I'm really going to be that interested in. But you give me a, give me the Who, or maybe one about um, one about Mick Jagger. I'd be down with that. But I haven't seen any of that coming up anytime in the near future. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of kind of on board with you on that. Is that I, I really have very little interest in Boy George and what his personal life was. Uh, just you know, his music didn't touch me enough to make me care. Yeah, he falls into that category of um, just shock music, where I'm gonna make my face look like a candle. Uh, it's basically the. Um, I mean, essentially, if you want to hear right down to it, it's the uh, Lady Gaga. Uh, not now, Lady Gaga, but Lady Gaga 10 years ago where she had a, a shrub on her face. Um, and then him and then probably Marilyn Manson where I'm not getting enough attention. So let me go ahead and do something just so outrageous that you're going to pay attention to me. It's the the musical equivalent of taking a, a pan and putting a spoon in it and banging it down the hall saying, look at me like you're a you know, two year old Bart Simpson. Yeah, okay, yeah, I tend, <laughs> tend to agree with you on all of that, but uh, let's get back to Rocket Man. <laughs> um, yeah, let's get back to Rocket Man. So, uh, where does this fall on the joy scale for you? Well, as much as I want to be objective and no, and you don't have to be objective. Uh, you can rate it however you choose. <laughs> no, I, I taking everything into account. And, and like I said, there's certain things about it that I could see how critics could have issues and I could see certain things about it. But there are just whole whole scenes put together in that film that made it for me. That scene where he's he's hammering out your song. Or is it the troubadour that first night? Tiny Dancer actually was really cool where he's just walking through that um, walking through that party and you kind of get the sense of the, the loneliness that he's experiencing. And then, of course, that that gut wrenching scene with his dad and then you add the, the fifth one where he's hugging, you know, nine year old Elton because he's finally, you know, accepted. Uh, he finally loves himself and he's ready to move on. And then just the fact that, you know, if Bernie, like you said, Bernie may very well have, you know, a possible, he may be a candidate for sainthood after he passes based on everything that he had to do. I'm going to go ahead and yet again say that this movie is Jaws. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm not, you know, I think we, we, talked about it before we started recording and while we were recording and pretty pretty clear that i'm not as high on it as you are uh but as we discussed it you know i mean it's pretty clear i did enjoy the movie i found it to be a worthwhile endeavor so i kind of 
jump back and forth on whether I say it's a Jaws 2 or a Jaws 3, because it's certainly not a Jaws for me. Um, I think I would go. I would think I would go with a, a low Jaws 2, because I do think it it has enough of the scenes as you were talking about that are worthy of rewatching. That pro- prop it up to be better than a Jaws 3. Uh, there's definitely some some things in it that that are entertaining and and worthwhile. So I liked it. I just didn't love it. And that's that's one one of the things nowadays. You know, with the internet being what it is, it is sometimes you feel like either something is, is if to go with our scale, you feel like people would say it's either Jaws or Jaws 4. That there is nothing in right. between. Uh, you know, this is in between, and it's certainly worth a viewing. But I'm not sure that it, it's going to have. I, I don't think we have an all-time classic here. Yeah. And and I really think what threw me over the edge too that I didn't mention just a second ago was the stylized way they almost interspersed it as a where it felt like it was a musical. Something about those those uh, montage scenes. I, I just absolutely adored the fantasy scenes in between. I thought that was the greatest use of of the music. And like I said, any movie that can make take a song like Crocodile Rock and actually make me want to listen to it. <laughs> that's something special. All right, that's fair enough. All right, I'm gonna thank you for coming on with me again tonight, Chris. And uh, thank you for the always, invitation. Always a pleasure talking to you. And you know, you'll be back. We have other movies to do. So uh, as long as long as you make yourself available, you will be back. Thank you, sir. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for listening in, and uh, we'll see you next time out. Feeling inside I'm not one of those Who can easily hide I don't have much money But boy if I did I'd buy a big house Where we both could live If I was a sculptor then again, no old man who makes potions in a traveling shoe knows not much, but it's the best I can do. My gift is my song, yeah, this one's for you. You can tell everybody. This is your song It may be quite simple But now that it's done Hope you don't mind Hope you don't mind That I put down the words How wonderful life For your endure The roof, we kicked out the moss. Well, a few of the verses, all oh, they got me quite the crowd. 